Now, analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning and welcome to the Woodford Show. Pack show to bring you this morning. We are going to talk about drug decriminalization in just a little bit. We'll also talk about the soaring price of gas. And we'll finish off the show discussing how to boost vaccine uptake in this age of anti-vaxxers. But first up, we're going to talk ICBC. On the phone this morning, joining us off the top is the Vice President of the Insurance Bureau of Canada, Aaron Sutherland, who, while on the phone, is in our fair city this morning. Good morning, Aaron. How are you? Thanks so much for having me today. Yeah, appreciate you coming on. So I guess first things first, uh, what brings you to Kamloops? Uh, well, here in Kamloops, talking about uh, the you know the, the consistent bugaboo we have, the, the challenges in our auto insurance system uh, under ICBC's monopoly. I'm uh, going to be speaking with the Chamber this morning uh, about the reforms that are underway, which uh, government introduced on April 1st, uh, and again is going to introduce this September, which will hopefully improve ICBC's financial situation. Uh, and mitigate the financial impact it has had on taxpayers in recent years. Uh, but the changes that are coming and the changes that have been introduced aren't going to reduce prices in this province. And giving the affordability challenges in auto insurance, that's why we'll also be talking about another solution that government unfortunately isn't considering, and that's the idea of giving drivers choice. Opening ICBC to competition, bringing that competitive incentive to the marketplace to ensure that they are delivering the best possible product at the best possible price, uh, and if they aren't, letting drivers take their business elsewhere to find those savings. Now, I assume that uh, Camel's Chamber isn't the only one you've talked to in the last little while. Uh, when you talk to Chambers of Commerce or do these presentations, what's the general feedback? What are people asking you, and what, what do they want to know about? Uh, well, you know, it's, it's, there's been a lot of questions as to, you know, you have competition or we have competition. We have choice in just about every other aspect of our lives and just about every other thing we do and purchase. Uh, but we don't in auto insurance, and yet most other Canadians do, and, you know, just about everybody else in North America does. Uh, and given the challenges we're faced, the, you know, the big question I hear is, well, why don't we have this and who can I talk to to change it? Um, so, you know, that's the conversation we're going to be having today. I've, I've spoken with, with many chambers of commerce across the province as well. Uh, as you know, you know, these are really the eyes and the ears of the local community and, and really the strongest voice often that the local communities have outside of their elected representatives. So I'm hoping it'll be another good conversation here this morning and looking forward to it. Uh, I've asked you this before, but I think it's worth asking again. I mean, uh, I get what you're trying to do. You're trying to open it up. We understand the problems around ICBC, but we had 16 years of uh, BC Liberal rule. They chose not to mess with the monopoly that was ICBC. I mean, they're talking tough now in opposition, but in government they never did. We don't have an NDP government that's showing no signs of, I mean, they are making drastic changes to ICBC, but the core of it, keeping that monopoly in place, seems to be something that they're intent on doing and, and are rebuffing any attempt uh, to privatize or to open it up for competition, or et cetera. Do you see any chance that's going to happen realistically, Aaron? Well, you know, I think the scale of the challenge has changed. Uh, you know, certainly we, you know, we've had successive governments come in and, and look at ICBC. I don't think any of them have particularly liked what's been going on there. You know, we've had review after review after review and challenge after challenge after challenge, whether it's been an NDP government, uh, you know, the, the Liberal government in the 90s, uh, you know, or sorry, the, the NDP government in the 90s, uh, the Liberal government uh, for the past 16 years, or even the social credit government before that. You know, it's basically since ICBC's inception, they've gone from one challenge to the next. Uh, and so I can't speak as to, to why 
uh, why changes haven't been made to date. Uh, I can simply talk about, and I'm here to talk about, how auto insurance works in the rest of this country, um, you know, and the prices other drivers are paying and how they are paying far, far less than we pay here in British Columbia. And again, the big difference between BC and the rest of this country is that competitive incentive that is missing. You know, you think about, you know, competition and the benefit it brings in terms of forcing a customer, or forcing a excuse me, forcing a company to relentlessly focus on its bottom line, to focus on its efficiencies, to make sure it's being as efficient and as innovative as it can be. Because if it's not, your customers are going to leave you. And we don't have that incentive here in our auto insurance system. And because of that, ICBC has been able to bring in rate increase after rate increase after rate increase. And so whereas, you know, other insurers, other Canadian insurers have brought in new products, new ways of doing things, new ways to reduce their costs, ICBC hasn't followed suit uh, and instead BC drivers are the ones paying the price. Now, if you look at other provinces, Ontario, and I brought this up with you before as well, but Ontario uh, has uh, a model that allows competition, still really high insurance prices. Uh, Saskatchewan does not, yet their insurance prices seem to be uh, the model that everybody wants to get to. So how do you explain that disparity? Yeah, you know, that's a really, you know, Ontario certainly is uh, the most expensive private sector jurisdiction. The average price there uh, is about $1,450. I would compare that to BC where we're, you know, around $1,700 on average for auto insurance. Um, But Saskatchewan, where it's government run as well, certainly is less. But it's a very, very different system uh, than Ontario or British Columbia. In Saskatchewan, there's no ability to sue for pain and suffering. And so when you take out, you know, the ability to make those claims, you take out a whole ton of the costs in the system. And so it's really not fair uh, to BC and to ICBC to be comparing their rates with provinces like Saskatchewan or with Manitoba uh, because the systems are just so different. But if you look at those systems where you cannot sue, they're called no-fault systems. You know, in Saskatchewan, rates around $1,100. Uh, around the same price in Manitoba, where they have that system as well. And again, Manitoba, uh, it's operated by government. Uh, but if you look at Quebec, uh, Quebec is a no-fault system where you're, where the private insurers actually insure your vehicle, and you have the ability to shop around uh, and find those savings. And in Quebec, to insure your vehicle, it costs around $660 on average, the cheapest auto insurance in this country. And again, that's a, that's a model where, the, where private insurers, where a competitive market uh, insures your vehicle. You know, if we're looking to get to a system similar to Saskatchewan, maybe it's the Quebec model we should be looking at. Uh, ahead, I mean, we've had big changes April 1st. Uh, we're going to see a major change coming out of September 1st. We're going to turn the whole model upside down to some degree. Uh, I'm just sort of curious. I'm seeing some stuff out there now. I mean, we, we know how the old system worked when a driver got into an accident. Uh, There's a pretty clear path about, you know, okay, should I pay out this out of my pocket? Is it going to save me over the long run? What do I do? All this kind of stuff. There seems to be some confusion out there right now, Aaron, about this new model. ICBC uh, hasn't really provided any details into how it's going to work, especially if with drivers looking to uh, lay a claim after an accident. I mean, do you see sort of a disparity of information right now ahead of September 1st? And, and is that a problematic thing? Yeah, you know, it, it's 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 a little bit challenging to find out exactly what the changes September 1st are going to mean for prices in this province. Because I think that's what, what we're all most concerned about. What is this going to mean for my pocketbook? Uh, and, you know, certainly we've heard uh, some drivers, their prices are going to go, you know, very much upward. Um, but it's those others um, it's as to whether or not they're going to see any savings at all, because ICBC's been, been somewhat unclear on that. Uh, but we're all going to find out 
uh, beginning this September, what's what's really going on and what these changes mean for us. Um, you know, ICBC is moving to a model uh, that is going to price their premiums uh, to much to much better reflect the risk drivers face. So, if you're a younger driver, uh, or if you're you have a history of at fault accidents, you're going to be you're going to be paying much much more for your auto insurance in this province. Uh, in a lot of ways, that makes sense. Uh, you know, if you're if you're a driver and you've had two, three uh, accidents in recent years, you probably should be paying uh, a bit more for your auto insurance. Uh, the challenge is the is the scale and the quantum that we're paying in this province. When you layer on those changes on top of the prices ICBC is already charging, uh, really, you know, drivers are going to be really facing an affordability squeeze uh, with the price they're paying, and so really, it, it's becoming that, you know. If not now, my God, uh, you know, we, we look at the price we're paying. Um, we look at the lack of choice in the marketplace. If you're going to be dinged with a, a massive bill come this September, you really deserve the opportunity to shop around to make sure that really is the best price and that ICBC really is delivering the most for your auto insurance dollar. Uh, and if they're not... Uh, you should be able to take your business elsewhere. Um, we've got a lot of challenges in this province in terms of, you know, the cost of housing, the cost of gas. Uh, the price of auto insurance shouldn't continue to be one of them. There's a solution out there, um, you know, giving drivers the opportunity to shop around, bring that competitive incentive to the marketplace, the best practice from across this country and right across North America. There's no reason we can't have it here in BC as well. And I guess my last question is, in your mind, how much onus is there right now in ICBC to explain and provide detail about this new model we're going to see September 1st when we insure the driver, not the car? Because I'm hearing uh, from, from auto body shops that there may be some hesitancy from drivers to even claim a crash if they don't understand how it's going to work. Uh, the discount right now is pretty clear under the old system, but under the new system, no one really understands what their discount or what their safe driving record is going to be. I mean, I understand there's sort of a 10 your scan and any accidents that pop up in the last 10 years are going to impact your your uh, your rates or your your driving record but we don't know how uh, in your mind are these important details and do they need to be on the table now oh i think absolutely drivers you know you know one of the whole rationales for having a public auto insurer is to have that clarity to have that uh, transparency uh, in what you're purchasing. Uh, unfortunately, ICBC's never been very transparent with their information, whether it's on, on on pricing or just you know their operations or their justification for their their continued rate increases. Uh, so I think drivers certainly deserve uh, deserve that information. Um, you know, it's critical. You know, you you have it in virtually every other jurisdiction. You can see you know what the impact um, is of your uh, you know of your claims history and what that's going to have on prices. Um, when you don't have the ability to shop around, uh, you should certainly uh, have the ability to understand what's happening with your prices and what a claim is going to mean for you. Um, so that you can make those decisions as to whether or not you want to make one, or if you want to pay it, uh, pay it out of your own pocket to to, to mitigate you know potential future uh, years of, of of much higher prices. Aaron, always a pleasure. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for giving me some time this morning, and enjoy your visit in Kamloops. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Always happy to chat. That was the Vice President of the Insurance Bureau of Canada, Aaron Sutherland. He's in town today. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we're going to talk drug decriminalization with the Executive Director of the Phoenix Centre. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back. Thank you for tuning in this morning. Real pleasure to be joined in our uh, 
broom closet temporary <laughs> studio again uh, by Sean Lewis, who's the executive director of the Phoenix Center here in Camels. How are you? Good. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for coming in. And apologies for the uh, jam space. I'm not usually a closed talker, but this is the way it works. <laughs> it's very cozy. Very cozy. Um, yesterday, Dr. Bonnie Henry, who you know is the mm-hmm. provincial health officer, made some news. Uh, she is calling for, in a 40-page report, the decriminalization of people who are possessing minor amounts of drugs, saying yeah. it's costing the system, uh, it's costing us all, it's not a good use of money and resources, uh, blah, blah, blah. You are on the front lines of this thing a lot more than, than I am, for sure. So, um, from your perspective, how, what do you think? Well, I think she's right. I think that criminalizing people for uh, personal use of any substance, um, it hasn't worked. It's actually created more harm than good, um, both uh, economically and socially. Um, these people are suffering, and to punish somebody for their suffering is not uh, a good approach, ever. Um, I think, um, you know, I, I was thinking about this last night, actually, in, in, in regards to our laws in Canada and how yeah. laws have come and gone. And I'm not comparing um, people who use substances to the same population that I'm going to talk about. It's more about the the unreasonableness of laws sometimes. And I'm thinking about that um, suicide used to be a criminal offense. Mm. Uh, we, we woke up and realized that actually people who are doing that kind of behavior are... are uh, they need compassion. They need help. People who use substances um, may or may not choose help, and they may not need help. They may be using substances and, and continuing on their life fine. But to punish people because they use substances is really not going to lead to any resolve because people are then going to go underground. It's not going to reduce the number of people who use substances, yeah. but it definitely will increase the rates of things like HIV and Hep C. Um, people won't be uh, coming, uh, being public about needing help, and I think that that's what we need to do: is see it as people who are actually in a place of suffering. The um, people who are now in a um, having problems with their substance use need to feel that they will be supported when they reach out for help not punished what about them because uh, the big thing is and if we if we tackle seriously the issue of decriminalizing people uh, as has been suggested there is going to be a division among the public there's going to be a political divide there's political ideology there's the the sort of moral opposition that's that's in a good chunk of the public about oh my god drug use no we can't sanction that mm-hmm. so uh, what do you how do you tackle that sort of societal mm. moral stance and, and the right and the wrongness of it. We right. Well, I don't talk about the right and the wrong of it because it's irrelevant. Uh, we all will have different ideas, as you mentioned. You yeah. know, I might think drug use is wrong. I might think drug use is right, or I might not really care one way or another. Um, I say, look at what's happening on the ground. If I argue with reality, I will lose every time. Four people every day are still dying because of this overdose crisis. And a lot of people maybe don't know that more people die every year um, with uh, deaths that are attributed to alcohol, more so than um, opioid use. So substances are killing people. Whether we think it's morally correct that they use these substances or not is irrelevant to me. It's what is actually happening on the ground. And it's also an interesting thing. I mean, we have um, alcohol continues to be our number one substance that we deal with at Phoenix Center. Uh, Alcohol is sanctioned. I can go in and I can buy a case of scotch. I can go home and poison myself with that scotch. And uh, I can go into a hospital and ask for help and I'll get it. I'm not going to be punished for reaching out for that help. Mm -hmm. But if I am using an illicit substance, 
And the same follows that I'm using the substance now becomes prob- a problem for me and I reach out for help. I'm risking potentially being criminalized for that behavior. And it falls, I mean, that same um, rationale f- follows for pharmaceuticals. I mean, we're punishing people for using illicit opiates, yet there are people who are prescribed opiates and because they're prescribed, they can use them without fear of punishment, but they can misuse them and still not be punished, but people who are using those same pharmaceuticals but purchasing out in the street are punished. So the whole thing about right or wrong really is, I think it's it's not the conversation that we need to be having. Uh, uh, we're getting down to the nitty gritty here as far as time, but I, I want to talk to you about this. Uh, you're on the front lines. You mm-hmm. deal with this every day. It's mm-hmm. essentially your job. Um, we have this debate in, in, in the public about, okay, people are dying. We have the opioid overdose crisis has highlighted this thing, the drug use, the decriminalization. Um, in a perfect world, if you could make a change right now that would help the Phoenix Center address the problem more effectively, not only to treat people and offer them the resources to get them out of that lifestyle, but to go upstream and start tackling the things that put them there in the first place, mm-hmm. give me an idea what changes you could you would you'd want to see made. Well, you know, perfect world for one thing doesn't exist. No, so I, I think it's I want about to get an idea about the scope yeah. of the problem. Yeah, well, I, I think I think that you know, stigma is. The, the very least of what people are suffering in terms mm. of drug use. And as soon as I feel shamed, I'm not going to want to reach out for help. So that would be the number one, is that people don't feel the stigma of that anymore. If I have um, a heart attack, I feel quite bold in my ability to go forward and tell people this has happened to me and I can talk about it freely. I would hope that that would happen for people who are up against problematic substance use, that they can just talk about that freely and that they can access the help they need. And secondly, that they're not going to be punished for that. What about uh, treatment itself? I mean, there's always a discussion yeah. about increasing bed space because I had an interesting conversation with Ken Christian a little while ago, and he made, the, uh, I think, an accurate point. When someone asks for help, you know, someone who's, who's addicted, and mm-hmm. they, they come to a point where they say, I need help, you mm-hmm. can't say, well, you know what, I'm going to check my list. I'm gonna, mm-hmm. we, we can talk mm-hmm. to you in three weeks. Mm-hmm. They need that help in the moment that they're mm-hmm. desperate enough to mm-hmm. get it. But our system isn't necessarily designed so much to be able right. to offer that help. Yeah, and, th- and that's a lot of work that we need to do. There's a full continuum of services and all of those services need to be better connected and fluid so that it is a true continuum and not um, siloed. And from our service perspective in particular, yes, we, we, could, we could heighten our capacity, we could serve more people, we could see fewer people on the wait list, but that takes resources. Absolutely. Yeah, so more resources, more funding, more beds. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Absolutely. Um, a real pleasure. Thank you for just taking a few minutes to try and shed some more light on this because I think it's a really difficult topic. And I, I think we need to keep in front of us that, that people every day in this community are losing their lives. I, I went to the Burning Bright display at the TNRD library yeah. building. And I noticed people are starting to just leave pictures of loved ones mm-hmm. among the candles marking the 600 or so lives lost. And it kind of put, for me, it put a powerful human face on this issue that we are trying to get our heads wrapped around. So anyway, thank you for taking some time thank to come. I appreciate it. Thanks, Shane. Uh, that's uh, Sean Lewis, the Executive Director of the Phoenix Center. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side, the Woodford Show will discuss high gas prices. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back. We're going to talk about the soaring price of gasoline. Real pleasure to welcome to the program this morning the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Chris Sims. Good morning, Chris. How are you? Good morning. Fantastic. Excellent. So uh, what's the price of the pump down there? 
Oh, my goodness. It is brutal. Uh, here in the Fraser Valley where I live, it's about a dollar fifty-eight a liter uh, for regular. And then as soon as you hit the border into Metro Vancouver, it's about a dollar seventy-two. I know in some stations in Delta, it actually hit a dollar seventy-eight for regular gasoline. It's <laughs> record-breaking high prices. <laughs> and they're going to do nothing but keep going up. So um, a lot of lot of stuff going on here. And number one is the tax burden at the pump. Number two is uh, politics. John Horgan's NDP government under a lot of fire here. Uh, they are uh, on board with the carbon tax, but at the same time, they're sort of hinting around, well, we can find ways to maybe do some relief. We'll monitor it, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, the other thing is just the real world, uh, Chris. I mean, gasoline has always gone up in my lifetime. So what do we do about it? Well, there's lots of things we can do about it. Uh, First off, it's holding these politicians to account and pinning them down. So the notion that Premier John Horgan and other carbon tax cheerleading politicians like him would suddenly be concerned about high prices at the gas pumps is absurd. It's absolutely absurd because high gasoline prices, making gasoline unaffordable for a lot of people, is a feature not a bug that is the purpose of the carbon tax is to quote unquote change behavior and that's a nice euphemistic way of saying that means people can't afford to go drive to pick up groceries and they need to figure out some way how to walk or they can no longer afford to take that road trip this summer to go visit their grandma on the island they need to stay home that's making different choices for most people because most people in british columbia don't live a walk from a SkyTrain station. So for him to suddenly say, oh, wow, these gas prices sure are high, well, he made them high, not only through the carbon tax, which, by the way, British Columbia is increasingly standing alone. We're now seeing governments, i.e. the voters, from Alberta all the way out to New Brunswick, challenging the carbon tax, pushing back against the federal carbon tax, British Columbia is out here on its lonesome saying, we're carbon leaders. (laughs) We have the highest carbon tax in all of Canada. We're going to keep on putting it up. So that's the carbon tax. With with GST, it's 9.8 cents per liter in BC. Also, as you point out, it's the politics of it. So Premier John Horgan and Green Party leader Andrew Weaver have declared war on oil and gas, specifically Alberta's oil and gas. And as we know, the Trans Mountain Pipeline that runs right through your neck of the woods here in Kamloops, there in Kamloops, right through mine here in the Fraser Valley, it supplies a pretty good chunk of refined gasoline or gasoline for the refineries for supplies, especially in the lower mainland. And guess what? If Premier-elect Jason Kenney in Alberta changes the mix going down that pipe so that they're not getting any more gasoline, then the prices are going to go even higher. Whereas if you twinned it, if you actually twinned it the way that the feds have said we're allowed to do for the past five years, they could send more gasoline product down the existing pipeline because it's a mixed-use pipe. So there's a lot of moving parts here. Most of them are solvable through politics and political will. The question is if Horgan has it.
Well, uh, a lot going on there. Number one, if we wiped out the carbon tax today, that's what was it you say, 9.8 cents a liter? Correct. Um, if we wipe that out, sure, gas might drop by about a dime. But uh, here in Kamloops, for example, Chris, we just had a 17 cent jump at the pump. Yep. I mean, it, it, sure, you can wipe out the carbon tax. You make an argument, oh, well, it might lower gas. But in my real world experience is just in a single day here in Kamloops, in a real world, every single week of the year, gasoline goes up. So how, I don't think overall that would drive down gas prices. Well, there's different things. This is the thing, though. There's certain things we have control over as, you know, Democrats and uh, voters here in British Columbia. So we can vote for politicians who will actually make change, like canceling the carbon tax, like expanding the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which will increase supply. And naturally, it stands to reason that if you have more supply, your costs will go down. And if you cut taxes, that will actually reduce the price. So we can control that. We unfortunately don't seem to be able to control what an actual oil company charges for their product. Also keep in mind that there's a shortage in British Columbia and especially in the lower mainland for supply. And we're often forced to buy it at a premium markup from places like Washington State, from their refineries. So if we have a refinery supply problem, it stands to reason that we're going to see gasoline prices continue to go up. Now, of course, we're always going to see fluctuations, as Dan McTagg, the petroleum expert, will point out. When they switch over to summer gas, that causes a big supply issue. We'll see a spike in prices. But I know across Canada, we saw a drop in prices for a little while there, and a lot of people enjoyed it. What didn't drop was the taxes. And so the main thing we can affect that we can actually change today is the tax, is the tax cost on that. And for tomorrow, we can change the supply. Now, on the price side, I mean, we're all complaining about the price of gasoline, uh, but I glance over at Europe, uh, and they're way more expensive. In Europe right now, it's about two fifty to about $3 per litre. That's in Canadian uh, for what they pay there. Yet, Europe has managed to figure out a way to move people out of big gas-guzzling vehicles. They've made uh, Metrolinx and Transit a priority. You look at Norway, uh, there's a gas and oil country built on gas and oil. They don't subsidize gasoline at all, and yet they have the largest electric vehicles uh, numbers on the road uh, of any European country. Uh, we obviously need to get off gas and oil to some degree because it's costing us. Uh, people are, the carbon tax argument is, okay, it's the invisible hand. You're trying to motivate people. But if it's not carbon tax, Chris, what is it? Because gas prices are going to continue to go up regardless. So it's the issue of comparing to Europe here. Um, North America is fundamentally far and away different from Europe and most European countries. Most European countries have an enormous amount of pre-existing and long-standing infrastructure, including train travel, uh, transit links, all those sorts of things. They're way more densely populated. Uh, they don't drive nearly the distances that many in Canada, especially those of us in more rural areas of Canada, like Kamloops, like the Fraser Valley, like your listeners who travel up north, say up to Prince George for work, um, Europeans largely, not always, but largely don't live and drive like that. So I would say the comparison to Europe um, doesn't really work. I would say we would more compare ourselves to our neighbors to the south, especially those, say, in Washington State. So if we compare ourselves to Washington State and even want to do an apples to apples, let's not even compare a rural part of Washington State. Let's compare Seattle to Vancouver. The price difference in gasoline there is about 50 cents a liter. That's about $35 Canadian per fill-up. Mm -hmm. And that is a world-class Pacific Northwest jewel of a city in Seattle. 
They've got a transit system. They've got a great system there in their cities. You know, it's modern. It's literally the place that started things like Starbucks and Amazon. It's very progressive. But they pay 50 cents less per, per liter for gasoline. So I think that's a more fair comparison. If we what start are, what are they doing overseas, down there? Um, there's a huge, huge difference there. Yeah. What are they doing in the States? I mean, if Seattle is enjoying such a, a great, and I agree, I mean, lots of people from B.C. or lower mainland specifically, as you know, in Surrey and Abbott and places, mm-hmm. they, they all go across the border to fill up and they save money on it. So what is happening in the United States at the pump that isn't happening here? One of the big issues, and again, I know it's my job, but it's taxes. The tax structure in Washington State, even in, like I said, a very, very, I would say, progressivist city like Seattle, is way different. We pay through the nose, especially in the Lower Mainland. In the Lower Mainland, they have the TransLink tax, which is soon going to be 18.5 cents per liter of regular gasoline. On average, they pay about 52 cents per liter down here. Up in Kamloops, it's around 30-something cents per liter for taxes. The, the, long, the short answer is taxes are a big difference down there. And then again, they can buy their gasoline from their refineries. And whatever they have left over, they sometimes have a shortage, they then sell to us here in the southern part of British Columbia at a big markup. So that's one of the major reasons. And then also, again, we can't stress enough, if you turn around and declare war on places like Alberta and you have your cities saying, you know, we need to divest from oil and gas and you're trying to to put up roadblocks everywhere you can, hating on oil and gas, which literally makes our modern world run, you're going to wind up with pump prices of $1.72 a liter. And again, if folks want that and they like that, that's fine. Like, But it's literally what they're pushing for. But my problem is with politicians who suddenly say, oh, wow, these gas prices are high. <laughs> they made them high. They made them high so that people can't afford to fill up as often. So they got to figure out what the priority is. Yeah. Uh, we're we're uh, flat out of time. I just want to squeeze this in here real quick. What is your sense of the refinery argument? Uh, John Horgan has made, well, why don't we just build another refinery? Uh, my sense, personally, is I don't think the climate exists to do it. And also, it is wicked expensive. It is wicked expensive. And very quickly, do it. Put your money where your mouth is, John Horgan. Pick your spot and campaign on it. Say, I'm going to build a gas refinery right here. Put your finger on the map and say you're going to do it. If not, he's just mouthing it. Chris, always a pleasure. Thank you for taking some time. Likewise. Take care. All right. That's Chris Sims, who's the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, talking about the soaring price of gasoline. As I mentioned, up to 17 cents a litre in some gas stations here in Kamloops, and you heard what the price is down in the lower mainland. Holy smokes. I will take a quick break, and uh, on the other side of the Woodford Show, we'll tackle vaccines. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Well, as we all know, the number of measles cases in North America continues to grow with major outbreaks in spots around North America, a big one in New York State, uh, and that is causing concern. It's also highlighted a growing number of anti-vaxxers, people who believe that vaccines do not work in error, I might add. A real pleasure to welcome to the program the lead author of a study on uh, some things, uh, some options on vaccination anyway, uh, the associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at UBC. Dr. Julie Bettinger. Good morning, Julie. How are you? 
I'm good, Shane. Thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, this is a, an issue near and dear to my heart, and I find uh, I am increasingly frustrated, Julie, with the uh, the anti-vaxxer sentiment. It is pure conspiracy theory stuff. I have, uh, unfortunately, some people in my life who are anti-vaxxers, and I find myself ripping my hair out trying to talk to these people because it, it's just nonsensical. Um, vaccines work. So you've done a study to kind of delve into uh, what the mood is out there as far as measures that can be taken what did you find? Well, yeah, so we looked, we did a survey of British Columbians um, to ask them really to measure their approval for a variety of different policy options that could be put into place to increase our immunization coverage rates. Um, You may or may not know that British Columbia has the lowest immunization coverage in Canada and in fact some of the lowest rates in North America. And so when we were looking to our neighbors to the south, United States, as well as Australia, uh, they have much higher rates than we do, um, you know, high 80s up into the 90s, and yet they were implementing many policies to even improve on those rates. And we were very curious as to how acceptable these policies would be to British Columbians. And, I mean, again... um there's lots of measures being taken in the states. We know that, uh, for example, in, in some parts of New York now, they're they're banning unvaccinated uh, people, kids from from public spaces. I believe there was a, recently a ruling in the United States where uh, they ruled against using some excuses for not vaccinating your children. Um, how do we reach these people who are um, adamantly opposed to vaccination for reasons that are, again, just not correct? Right. So, you know, I think some of the policies you're mentioning in the states are um, mandatory immunization for school entry, mandatory immunization sometimes for daycare, preschool entry. And in the past, they had sort of had exemptions for personal beliefs or religion. And you're right, in a lot of jurisdictions, those policies are being tightened up. In British Columbia, we don't have any of those types of policies in place. Uh, What's currently being proposed is a policy that would require documentation of, of, of immunization status upon school entry. So it doesn't require your child to be immunized, but you have to show whether or not they are. Um, and in our study, we did ask a question about what, you know, if people would agree or strongly agree with that. And over 80% of our survey respondents strongly agreed with, with that type of policy or agreed with it. Uh, what was also interesting is that we had 60% who were actually in favor of uh, what you were talking about, you know, only allowing children who've been fully immunized to enter school. So we have sort of high levels of support in the population for these types of policies that may enable us to improve our coverage rates. Uh, one of the things I found interesting about uh, your study is there seemed to be, by and large, more than 80% of respondents, as a matter of fact, um, seem to be in favor of a variety of actions here. There seems to be some sense that, that, that there's a pool of anti-vaxxers out there, and I don't know if, if, I think personally there's a very small pool. If you talk to them, they say they're the silent majority. Uh, but um, I found your study interesting because it seemed to show that the vast amount of people uh, understand what's at risk here, what's at play, and are in supportive of some measures to tackle the problem. No, I think you're absolutely right, and that was one of the findings that I was most excited about. You know, we had well over 80% who had very positive attitudes towards immunization, and and I agree. I think they very strongly support it. Um, You're correct when you say I think it's a very small pool. The estimates I've seen on that are around maybe 1% to 3% of the population who refuse all vaccines outright. And so then what we're dealing with when you look at our coverage rates of about 70%, we've got another maybe 20 
25 to 27% who are either unimmunized or underimmunized. And that group may not be, um, you know, the hardcore refusers that, that you mentioned. I, I think there's probably a lot of room within that group to actually improve our uptake rates. How do you tackle the misinformation out there? Because I think that's sort of key. I mean, there's, a, there's again, the small pool of people, but they are super defensive. They get their backs up right away. They cling to, to theories and weird little twisted, misrepresented uh, spins of information uh, to represent their viewpoint. But at the same time, we have to, I mean, it's just not true. And I struggle with how to convey or inform some of these people. And again, I've, I've gotten into debates with them. It's incredibly frustrating. Uh, but when you consider the public health risk, uh, what measles is and and what it can do it can be deadly when you consider all of these things how do we how do we better inform people and and battle some of these half-truths that are out there right now so i think it's i think it's challenging if we had an easy solution we would have already dealt with it i think one of the most important things we can do is listen i don't think it's helpful to label or name call Uh, i think it's really important to understand what people's concerns are why they're concerned and and then try to speak with them about it Uh, what we know from the research that we've done is that a recommendation from a healthcare provider that they trust is the number one reason people choose to be vaccinated. So I think it's really important that we educate and arm our healthcare providers with the correct information so that they can then make a difference in their day-to-day dealings with individuals who may have questions about vaccines. I also think it's important, as as you do, that those of us who support vaccination speak out and also talk with people in our communities about their concerns and their fears and, and have these conversations in a respectful way. One of the things that I'm most concerned about, and uh, it's just one of those weird, twisted things that, that some of these people opposed to vaccines that come up with, well, they'll say, hey, listen, there's never been a vaccination death in North America, which, you know, isn't true. There hasn't been in a long time, but it's not like it's never happened. But but from where I'm sitting right now, and I see that, that unvaccinated, some unvaccinated people, segment of the population are causing an increased rise in measles rates, and yes, thank God we have a really cutting-edge medical system, which helps a lot, but I just wonder, with, with any kind of exposure to this anti-vaccination argument and any kind of increase and in the increase in measles we're seeing itself that the chances of seeing another measles death the first in decades in north america are are rising do you you feel oh absolutely yes when you have transmission going on in the population as we do now all of the sorts of really bad effects of these diseases that we've been trying to prevent become a possibility that's why it's so important that we keep our rates high because then we're able to protect our entire communities and not just the individuals who have been vaccinated. Uh, Julie, you've done this report. Uh, You've shed a little bit of light on the subject matter. Uh, What happens now? What's the next step? You've done all this work. Uh, How do you use it or what's the next step here? Well, so I think what our report does is it, it lays out a very nice baseline for what British Columbians think. And it was done back in 2017 and and before we had a measles outbreak, before there was a lot of focus in the media about this. So I think it provides a very nice baseline of what people are thinking when there's not a lot of attention on the subject. I think now what would be very nice is to sort of follow up on this survey and see where people's opinions are now. We know they change over time. We know they can be influenced by different things. We've got a baseline against which we can now measure it. If the um, proposed legislation goes into place, it would also be very nice to be evaluating that and see, you know, what effect that has had on people's opinions and views towards policy. Uh, We're flat out of time, but thank you so much for taking a few minutes uh, out of your day to have this chat. And I hope that uh, if there's anyone listening out there uh, that finds themselves doubtful or opposed to vaccinations, that hopefully this will do something to change their mind. But uh, thanks again for taking some time.
Oh, thanks for having me on your show. Appreciate it. That's Bye. Dr. Julie Bettinger, who's the uh, associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at UBC, also the lead author of a study on uh, on options and, and sort of a public sentiment about what to do on the vaccination front. And uh, I will end by saying this. Vaccines work. They absolutely work. And I plead with you, if any of you are out there uh, who are opposed to vaccines, don't want vaccines or, or find themselves in doubt, go talk to your local doctor. Go talk to a local expert here in the community be informed and please make the right decision that's it for the woodford show we'll see you again tomorrow except the name changes inside politics coming your way friday morning Logan Lake, 98.1 Blue River, 97.5 Avola. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM. Local news now.